Blog Talk Radio. This episode sponsored by Dads of Disability. Stories for, by, and about fathers of children who experience disability and the women who love them. 41 essays, including a forward by the director of the Genetic Counseling Program at Boston University. Samples and special offer at www.dadsofdisability.com coffee. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. It's incredibly easy to use, and every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that will look great on every device, every time. It starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. For a free trial and a 10% discount, go to squarespace.com forward slash blog talk. That's squarespace.com forward slash blog talk. There it is if I need it. Love Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Hello, and welcome back to the Bright Not Broken radio show on the Coffee Clatch. We are so excited to continue in our series, The Whole Child. This is part three, and we're going to be continuing in our discussion that we had with our earlier guests, Dr. Linda Silverman and Bobby Gilman of the Gifted Development Center. Our topic's going to be tonight education. We're going to talk about two very popular and very controversial issues, that is RTI, Response to Intervention, and Common Core. And we're going to be talking about those in terms of education. Our discussion wouldn't be um, complete without covering these when we talk about assessment as we did in our earlier interview. And um, I'd like to mention before we get started here, um, I'd like to talk about something that we discussed in our earlier session about assessment. We just want to make sure um, that it's understood because Linda and Bobby were discussing and they thought maybe they hadn't stated this and they want to state it correctly, and that is whether or not um, you need an assessment if you see giftedness, not just disability. Bobby, would you like to clarify that for us so we're sure we've got that right? Well, I would because I, I think Linda said something that that I thought didn't sound like her, <laughs> um, that you would need to test for the disability, but if you knew the giftedness was there, that wasn't the issue. But she was really thinking of very young children in whom you see those gifted characteristics early at 18 months. No, you don't need to test at 18 months. Uh, but um, 
coming from the side of it of, you know, if your child is gifted but you don't see any obvious weaknesses, you're not concerned about that, um, we do very much support testing those children um you know usually age six is a really good time six or seven unless you're trying to get the child into a self-contained gifted school which may require you know some documentation of giftedness earlier Uh, but the reason for that is important it really is that you're going to inevitably be advocating for your child in school and this is your basis for advocacy of a gifted child this is your documentation of ability that you don't have to prove it's a much better documentation than the screeners schools use at school you know which as i mentioned happen to miss many twice exceptional children they also tend to under Uh, document the giftedness of highly exceptionally and profoundly gifted children so this becomes your your basis for advocacy inevitably at some point you're going to be asking teachers to do something different for your child when he or she comes home and and keeps saying why do we have to do this over and over when I already know it (laughs) Uh, you're going to be looking for something some kind of accommodation or some different approach for your child and this is the information the school doesn't have to understand your child better and they're much more likely to listen to you when you ask for options so we just wanted to get that in well thank you so much because it is it's very important and as you were talking about Meeting the testing to understand um, when your child is asking over and over again, why do I have to do this? I already know it. Um, moving, it, it kind of sets the stage for RTI to some degree because um, especially in the gifted population, RTI is, is, is a controversial topic. And it's one that I think our listeners really, really need to be uh, just solidly educated on. Um, so do you mind giving them a brief background on RTI, Bobby, particularly where it came from, and how and why it's becoming the standard method for identifying students um, with and with special needs? Well, this comes out of special education law, IDEA, or Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, uh, which is our federal special education law and the law has been reauthorized a number of times. The most recent time was uh, IDEA 2004, uh, which became law in 2005, and probably most of us didn't see aspects of it locally until about 2008, because whenever the federal law changes, it takes time for states to adapt their laws and and districts uh, to adapt their regulations and so forth. But what happened in in IDEA 2004 was that there were changes. If you look at the section on services for specific learning disabilities, it used to be prior to this particular reauthorization, that children with learning disabilities were found by 
comprehensive assessment. First, the school psychologist did the IQ and achievement tests and any other, you know, test to, you know, look at a suspected disability. And if the child had a significant discrepancy between a major score on a comprehensive IQ test, it could have been the full-scale score or sometimes a verbal IQ or verbal comprehension score, um, a significant discrepancy between that which would have been higher in a gifted child and, say, a broad reading score, broad math, broad written expression, then they could be deemed eligible for services for a specific learning disability. Now, the testing also would rule out other causes. You know, the, the child was moving last year or had a poor teacher or there were emotional stressors in the family or some such. Um, but you would rule these things out, and then if the child had this significant discrepancy and was struggling in that area, they were eligible for an IEP, an individual education plan, and services for their disability. Now, with IDEA 2004, we saw a significant change. We saw uh, initially that it said schools must not require a severe discrepancy between ability and achievement, uh, you know, for service eligibility. Now, you notice it it does not say schools cannot use this as an indication. It says they must not require it. And why did that come about? Well, there were several reasons. Um, one was that teachers were expressing frustration that they literally had to wait a significant amount of time for a child to begin failing before they would show the requisite discrepancy and qualify for services. And that was a very uncomfortable, you know, feeling for teachers. They wanted to address problems sooner. There were some population groups that felt their children were over-identified as having a specific learning disability. Um, those were the main issues, but now we have this new, uh, new law that says schools must not require that. If you look further through the law, it still mentions that in diagnosing specific learning disabilities, you can look at ability achievement discrepancies. You can also look at discrepancies between different subject area achievement, like math is very high and reading is low. Um, so you can look at more things. But what they introduced that was new was a new schools were to develop a scientifically based program in which teachers could locate children performing below grade level and provide interventions. Uh, in most schools, this has come to be called response to intervention, RTI, um, and it, the program typically uses teams of teachers, sometimes other specialists are involved, special ed people, for example, um, but teams of teachers who would locate children 
performing below grade level in the classroom, and then provide scientifically-based interventions. Now, one problem I have with this is that, you know, there are books with scientifically-based interventions, but the question is always, for what? And, and if you <laughs> haven't... <laughs> Scientifically based on what population is is a good point Linda just made, but also scientifically based on what you think is going on without assessment, because along with IDEA 2004 has been um, a significant restriction of children's access to comprehensive assessment. Um, In most states, it is not easy access um, in our state, in Colorado. Our school psychologists tell us that you know they're virtually testing no children except developmentally disabled children. And so it's been a huge, dramatic change here. So if teachers are finding children who are performing below grade level based on achievement testing, ongoing performance assessments and such, Um, then they're applying some kind of intervention. Uh, RTI is typically defined as a program with levels of intervention, so you would start more simply, apply some kind of intervention to help, for example, a child who's slow learning to read. And then if that didn't help, you would apply a more targeted intervention. Um, Often the third level of intervention is to provide in-depth assessment Um, and then at some point if the child is not responding appropriately to the interventions the child is referred to special education for an evaluation there so this is a new first step towards special education it is not a special education initiative it's a regular education initiative so so that's basically the the notion of it now if you have gifted children you may have heard of the concept of extending RTI to gifted children and the idea there is that if a team of teachers could locate children performing below grade level and apply interventions to help beginning in the classroom, they could also do that for gifted children who might be advanced and uh, need accelerated work. Um, So this concept broadened in this way, as some authors have written about it, could potentially provide a very nice environment in which to address twice exceptionality, both the gifts and the weaknesses within the regular classroom. However, we're not seeing a lot of states have this extended form of RTI, and the federal mandate remains in place just for the children below grade level. So that's the first problem because if twice exceptional children are not performing below grade level, then addressing their needs could be just a voluntary effort on on the part of teachers. 
And typically RTI requires a lot of planning, a lot of paperwork. You're following a child through an intervention and checking to see what the result was and then considering another intervention. So it's asking a lot for teachers to voluntarily provide interventions for children. They're not required to locate. Uh, so that's okay. part of it. Um, but the Can other I ask issue, a quick question, Bobby, yeah? real quick? While you're talking, what keeps coming to my mind is you said that they – it earlier that one reason um, IDEA 2004 moved away from comprehensive assessment was because of the amount of time of failure before students were assessed comprehensively. But it sounds like with RTIs, students are also getting caught in a timely process of repeated failure before they're moved either to a third tier referral for comprehensive testing. Have, is, can you is that right or wrong? I mean, it's just... Well, that's when you... absolutely correct, and there's a couple of aspects of it. Uh, one is, is something that um, was addressed by the Department of Education in a clarification that schools cannot delay or deny RTI, uh, you know, specifically that the concern was they can't put off too long referring a child for special education. And there have been these children, you know, who have been in RTI for two years, and um, that's a problem if they haven't been referred on for, um, you know, more significant services with special ed. But the other issue is for gifted children, we're noticing that a lot of those who have specific learning disabilities are still performing in the average range, maybe the low end of the average range, still at grade level while mm -hmm. having significant problems um, that they're struggling with. And so they're not being located through RTI because they're not performing low enough. They're not getting referred to special ed. Um, they could potentially um, be referred to special ed by their parents, but their parents are not usually notified of this option if no problem is seen by the teacher. So in terms of waiting longer to get services, the gifted may wait forever in some cases. See, it's important to recognize that the 16th percentile is still considered average, oh. low average. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. Auto, you have to be below the 12th percentile uh, to be considered disabled, and, and there has to be an indication that you can't catch up on your own within three years without services. And, and I'd never want to make a statement like that about gifted children, because if, if they encountered a teacher with the right instructional approach, they could probably progress very quickly. The other yeah. issue is, now we've been talking about learning disabilities, but many schools have extended RTI to other disabilities as well. And because the comprehensive assessment is, um, you know, generally not there, um, 
you know, decisions are being made about children who may have attentional weaknesses or other issues, and and we've seen some some very concerning situations where, for example, a child with an autistic spectrum issue um, was not behaving accordingly. There was no diagnosis, and the child was put on a behavior plan Mm -hmm. that he didn't understand, and um, everything went from bad to worse as he went through this rewards and punishment system of the behavior plan, and all because there was no initial diagnosis to clarify what interventions needed to happen. So these are the kinds of things that we're very concerned about right now. This group seems to have been left out of the mix, and and there are so many who um, are just missed. They're invisible right now. Well, and as you said before, the teams of teachers sitting and compiling data to see who's making it the standard at the time, going to Common Core and who isn't, um, what behaviors are we witnessing in the classroom and what we're not. Um, so there is a list of interventions given that, that we're, we, we can administer um, and how quickly um, we administer them, how quickly the students respond. And I say we because I'm in the thick of this. And um, still, is the data changing? Is it changing enough um, to, to say that this child has uh, been effectively intervened and, and needs to leave RTI or the, the program, if you will, uh, is no longer qualifies for interventions, but never recognizing the fact that the child needs interventions is, is to me, more scary than having a child that, that we recognize needs help. We're doing something at least we're recognizing that child, but for our twice exceptional students, they're not even being recognized. I mean, this is a whole population that the education system um, has the potential to not serve completely. Is is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely, and that's exactly the way we're seeing it. Well, do you think, and one thing that you brought up is it's the teachers, it's the classroom teachers. And it's it's their training in giftedness and their training in disabilities to to a large extent that will determine whether a student is recognized one or the other or both. And so, um, and we know that teacher training and giftedness is inconsistent from program to program and state to state. We also know that teacher training in disabilities is is as uh, limited because. A general classroom teacher doesn't spend a lot of time learning about these things in terms of the teacher education programs. So um, how do you think this is impacting identification under RTI? I don't think there's much training in graduate programs in any discipline on giftedness. Very little in education. There's none in the field of psychology. Even school psychologists in a recent study were not trained at all on how to identify the gifted, what the characteristics of giftedness are. So it's like this population, and especially twice exceptional children, are are truly invisible when no one knows anything about either one of them. 
I'm so glad you brought that up, Linda, because that has been one of our efforts with Bright Not Broken and certainly with this show is to bring the information, to bring those people who are the experts to recognize gifted to help not just parents, but more importantly, the people that the parents are left to rely on, the educators, the medical professionals. It it just needs to be a conversation that needs to be had at every level. And I'm so glad that you pointed out gifted is not um, not only the first thing. Sometimes it's just not uh, something that's taught to our professionals, and we need to change that conversation. We have developed, uh, Bobby and Betty Maxwell and I, a teacher checklist. We call it the teacher-counselor checklist for twice-exceptional children that we'll be posting in our new website. We hope to have that up soon. But um, we will definitely have that available to people so that they can begin to look at those characteristics of children in the classroom and gain some awareness of what it is they should be looking for. Wonderful. We will certainly uh, pass that resource on as soon as you get that up. That's that's fantastic. That is exactly the sort of thing that, that needs to be available, and I'm so glad you included counselors on that with teachers. Uh, one of the thoughts is that... We're probably not going back anytime soon to easy access for all children with suspected disabilities to comprehensive assessment, but if we could, as one of my colleagues says, uh, triage comprehensive assessment and send those children who are conundrums, who have these these strange combinations of uh, gifted characteristics and symptoms of disabilities for this assessment, we could gain a lot of information and, and enough information to know what is needed. Um, you know, the other aspect of this is that with RTI in place, many states have very narrowly interpreted what special education should do and the children it should serve so that they're only serving, in many cases, a, a very narrow population um, at the bottom. Um, and so it may be that even with comprehensive assessment, your twice exceptional child never, you know, is, it becomes eligible for services with an IEP. Um, but we have been talking with uh, an Office of Civil Rights Attorney recently, and she has, has reminded us that 504 plans, if anything, are perhaps a little broader now, and these children probably would likely qualify for 504 plans, which, you know, with a reasonable indication of disability affecting their learning, can get all kinds of classroom and testing accommodations and possibly even what we think of as interventions or services. Um, I saw on one 504 plan last year a child was getting counseling once a, a week and I asked the attorney, what about reading therapy? And she said, well, yes, if he or she needs it. 
So um, that is a possibility, and parents can request at any time uh, a 504 plan evaluation and provide any data that they have from testing, privately done or however, um, and probably this can go through. Now, 504 plans are completely separate from RTI. It doesn't matter if you're involved in RTI interventions or if you've been ignored by RTI. Um, one can go around RTI and, and request a 504 plan. For me, I'm so glad you said that because it's very important that parents understand that um, they have options and that 504 is more flexible and in that that um, perhaps a twice exceptional child can get services that they wouldn't qualify for under special education testing. Um, you, let me one ask of the questions I know, uh, Becky, that you were interested in is what impact does RTI have on our ability to identify twice exceptional students? Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about that a lot. I think that by the wording uh, that RTI is using, where discrepancies are now an outdated term, we've managed to overlook the entire twice exceptional population. What I would advise parents and teachers to do if you're trying to find a twice exceptional child is to specifically look for discrepancies. Look for discrepancies between the sophistication of how they talk in class versus the sophistication of their written work. Look at discrepancies between how animated they get in their discussions and how excited they are about learning new things versus how upset they are with having to um, write or calculate or read or do something else that they're struggling with. Look at the difference between their enthusiasms and their frustrations. And be a talent scout for where is this child successful. And where does this child seem to experience frustration? If you notice success and you notice frustration and you notice the areas where they're successful and the areas where they're frustrated, that's the discrepancy between the giftedness and the disability. And that's what you absolutely have to pay attention mm -hmm. to if you want to understand and recognize twice exceptional children. And that's what, we have, that's what we have to look for as teachers are those moments because a lot of times, Linda, those will be moments where there's a behavioral flare up in the student and we have to go back as detectives and track, go back and figure out what were we doing, what were we asking the student to do, and why were they frustrated. Right. And because our expectations, like you said, they can set up high expectations for us verbally and be unable to follow through on the paper. Right. Um, and we have to look at, at what's fueling some of these. Because I, I look at behavior as a clue that something's going on. Mm -hmm. um, 
in the process, in the processing, um, in the social situation, just that the child's frustrated. And, and that, to me, is part of looking for the giftedness in terms of being able to look for the discrepancies and why they get frustrated and have a meltdown, what's causing the meltdown. And, That's and really an important approach to take. Unfortunately, when children don't perform as expected, they're often perceived by teachers as lazy or unmotivated. And sometimes even the parents get into this, you know, yes. thinking that, well, you know, Johnny could do better if only he'd buckle down, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and if I could overgeneralize for just a moment, one thing we do not find all the time is the conclusion that, well, yes, he was lazy and unmotivated. We, we <laughs> never find that. You know, we find kids who are, are frustrated, they're struggling, they want to do well, they want to please the adults in their lives, and they, they don't know how to. And the burden of being, you know, considered lazy and not trying, um, it just has, you know, huge effects on their self-esteem. I talked to a father about a month ago who was adamant that his child just needed to try harder. And I looked him in the eye and I said, he won't because he can't. And the father started to cry because he, he realized that it was almost impossible for him to wrap his mind around the child, as you've pointed out in your book, if his child can't do something, his child must be broken. And if his child is broken, then that reflects badly on him. And so I had to completely reorient his way of looking at what his child was having difficulty doing. Or what his child was choosing not to do. Because he was choosing not to do it because he wasn't good at it. Right, right. And that shutdown is... is so often misperceived too. Yeah. Um, either, and I teach high school, so I, I get, you know, well, that's just them being teens. That's just a choice they're making. No, there are days when we all make choices, but when it's a regular behavioral pattern, there's something else going on. You're um, an astute teacher, Becky. Pardon me, I didn't hear you. You're an astute teacher. Oh, well, thank you, Linda. I appreciate that. Um, she is, and if something? I can, oh, go ahead. Oh, I wanted I to ask gonna, about, go ahead, Diane, I'm sorry. Well, before you get to that, I'll get this out, and then you can come back to it. I just want to say, I'm jumping ahead to the next question, so if it doesn't apply to that, I'll let you finish. But I wanted to say, when you answer the next question, Becky, or you ask the next question, for Linda and Bobby to answer, I'm going to say, as the layperson here amongst everyone, <laughs> since you are an educator, the word common core, I, I want to make sure we bring that up because at the conferences we have spoke at and so many of the educational conferences now, it is becoming a required thing um, for teachers to go to. It is the, the buzzword, the popular thing. I would like you to explain and as we talk about what Common Core has to do with RTI, but go ahead and finish what you were going to say before. Well, um, just 
the question I had was about the uh, twice exceptional population and and not being identified under RTI and having almost to rely upon referral through comprehensive um, assessment earlier. You know the the population. Do you think the two E population, the twice exceptional, has been perhaps under um, the the size of it been understated? Yes. Or, okay. All right. And that that that's a question I've always in all the literature when we look at is it one six or something? It's been a couple of years since I looked at those statistics exactly, but. You know that population size seems so small for what we're possibly missing. We're finding a growing number of twice exceptional children in our population of individuals seeking our help at the office. Um, I don't know a great deal about Common Core, uh, but I do believe that the connection between the two is that the the focus as I see it is mandating uh, a certain minimum standard of performance in um, in this national curriculum and the minimum standards of no child left behind and the minimum standards of RTI that the child must uh, achieve minimal standards and they're only uh, considered in need of tier three assessment if they can't meet minimal standards is missing those children who are capable of more than minimal standards. When a twice exceptional child is able to meet the minimum standards, they say, that's all we're required to do in school is make sure that your child is meeting minimal standards. If we are not obligated to provide an optimal program for your child, we are not we're not uh, necessarily mandated to see what your child is actually capable of doing. If your child is getting minimum standards in our classroom, that is sufficient for us, and it ought to be sufficient. And this is truly making twice exceptional and gifted children invisible. Excellent point. That's excellent point. We we can't um, overstate what you just said enough. That is that is so true it is it is it goes to what you were saying earlier about the discrepancy that's probably the largest discrepancy is is the the absolute tragedy to not be able to serve those who need the help because they're meeting minimum standards but not meeting their own standards their individual standards are what are being left behind i'm so glad you brought that up and in in core, there are extensions like Tamara Stambaugh, uh from uh, William and Mary, or no, she's not there anymore. She's at uh, Peabody. Uh, has talked about how to extend Common Core for gifted students, but just like RTI can be extended 
for the gifted, and Common Core can be extended for the gifted. I don't think there's a mandate out there that requires that extension. Well, and, and one teacher uh, colleague of mine uh, has pointed out that there is a lot of pressure on teachers with no child left behind, RTI, Common Core in the testing to pick the kids for RTI who are just below the level to pass and work to bring them up, not to necessarily work hard with the kids who are furthest behind or ahead for that matter. Um, and she wrote me that this is because of a perverse way that the NCLB law is written. A certain percentage of students have to pass the test in order for the school not to end up on what she calls the naughty list. The technical term for that is school in need of improvement. Um, being on that list triggers all kinds of problems and red tape for schools. So. Um, there's a lot of pressure on teachers to, to help certain kids, and they're not necessarily the, the group we've been talking about tonight. No, but they're the bubble kids. That's what we call them because I teach in a school that was labeled uh, persistently low achieving or a PLA school um, when Common Core rolled in and, and they started doing, you know, the school of accountability under this, this new system. So you are, your friend is absolutely right in that the pressure is on the classroom teacher to move the kids we, who are sitting right below the next highest level to move them up to that proficient level, if you will, um, and, and because that's where school accountability comes into play. So um, school is going to be accountable for gifted children? When are schools going to be accountable for excellence? When are schools mm -hmm. going to be accountable for optimal development? I'd like to know that. Well, it's supposed oh, to be under our, federal, under our federal law that everyone is, is given the, the best education, but of course you're right. We're but they're not, not given the best education. Adequate or appropriate are terms but even appropriate doesn't apply to what's given to gifted and twice exceptional children. If you're going to use grade-based standards, grade-based standards only, and see if the child is able to do work at the fifth percentile, that's not the development of excellence. And when you, when you were talking, Linda, just a moment ago, I, I was thought um, I was reminded of our the title of our conclusion chapter in Bright Not Broken is ensuring the best future for our brightest minds, and that's exactly what you're talking about here. It's what we're all in agreement about. Who is ensuring the best future for our brightest minds? Not just bringing up to to the to the standard or to the level of pass, passing, but who's ensuring the best future for our brightest minds? We, the, I want the question answered. I love that idea. Uh, and what happens when we overlook twice exceptional students? What happens when we overlook gifted students? What we're doing is not assuring their best future and they're not ensuring our best future. 
if education is a great homogenization process where everybody ends up at 12th grade at exactly the same level, where are our future scientists going to come from? Where are our future creators going to come from? Where are our future artists going to come from? Having everybody uh, being able to do minimal standards in common core curriculum? I don't think so. If we look at our twice exceptional students and we look at what they're capable of contributing to society, it is immense. Some of our most amazing people, like Einstein, were twice exceptional. These are the people that we're holding back. These are the people that we're not recognizing and not thinking important enough to even offer a comprehensive assessment or accommodation to because we're trying to make everybody alike, and that's not the purpose of education. No, not at all. And when you think about, um, as you were talking, and, and the way that we're measuring everyone, I, the, the amount of testing that we're putting our students through, um, just just to be sure that they're making the minimal grade that they're supposed to make, is incredible. And we are, to, to a large extent, supplanting true learning opportunities with testing opportunities. And, and mandated testing, achievement testing, weekly assessments. Um, I agree. And, and, and uh, Sir Ken Robinson, I think, no, wait, it wasn't him. But he, he is certainly one who, who sees the importance of creativity in, in education and uh, recognizing, you know, that everyone, with, neuro, with the concept of neurodiversity, you can't teach everyone the same. You can't assess everyone the same. You you just can't. And yet that's exactly what our schools are wanting to do. And you're so right, Linda. Everyone graduates equal, but how equal are we? I mean, it's just uh, when it's it's not true equality when you've robbed someone of their potential. Absolutely. I think that's a beautiful way to sum up what what we're all about. We should not be robbing these children of their potential. I know that you shared with our listeners uh, some of the, the articles we suggested, and, and I hope that many of you will take a look at the, the article in Sage Open, uh, Critical Issues in the Identification mm -hmm. of Gifted Students with Coexisting Disabilities. Uh, if for nothing else, to read through the five cases studies of kids, uh, because I think they speak volumes and they'll speak to all of you. I'm glad you brought that up. And also um, the wonderful article that I noticed um, you were one of the contributors on, Bobby, along with Dr. Dan Peters, who we've had on this series of The Whole Child, and that is RTI and the Gifted Child, What Every Parent Needs to Know. Um, we've also sent links to that article as well. Fantastic read for parents to kind of make sense of all of this stuff we've been talking about, especially on this second this second conversation. That's on our website. And, oh, great. Um, well, do you, do you, you mind telling us? Go, Go ahead. ahead. Becky, we're going to say the same thing. <laughs> yes, we please were. tell us your website. 
www.gifteddevelopment.com. Okay, and you're on Twitter um, and also Facebook, correct? I have a Facebook page. And okay, we have a newsletter. Anybody who would like to get it, we'd be happy to add their emails to, to our list and send them our newsletter. We had a very relevant article just come out this week about the, how the word and and the, or the word or, one word can make all the difference in a twice exceptional child's life. Oh, good. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a wonderful article. We highly endorse it. Um, and by all means, to our listeners, if you're not already on the newsletter mailing list for the Gifted Development Center, it's something that you want to get on because they're always up to date with the most relevant information for our gifted and twice exceptional children. And we'd like to thank both of you for being our guests tonight. Um, and uh, I want to make sure I mention your book, Linda. We talked about that on one of our other interviews, Gifted 101, which is a wonderful resource. Giftedness 101. Giftedness 101. Thank you so much. <laughs> I don't know how that slipped my mind, and I'm staring right at it, so I should have known that. Thank you. Giftedness 101. And it, it is a wonderful resource. As well, that uh, I think people would be very interested in and would have relevance for twice exceptional children as well. Yes, tell us the name of Bobby's books. My advocacy book is Academic Advocacy for Gifted Children, A Parent's Complete Guide, and it does have a section on twice exceptional children, um, and also uh, Challenging Highly Gifted Learners. Yeah. That one was written for teachers, and it's... Uh, Yes wonderful book to know how to work with the most highly gifted children in the class. And I think we included a case study of, of a, a child, a twice exceptional child in there that had probably the largest discrepancies we had ever seen. <laughs> so we, we had a lot of suggestions for how to work with him. Wonderful example of discrepancy, which has been one of our key uh, topics tonight. We thank you again, and we are so grateful to both of you for your uh, sharing your expertise and your experience with us. We are thankful for the Gifted Development Center, and again, it'll be our our wish and hope someday that there's one in every state to be available, um, just based on your model, because the Gifted Development Center is is really. Um, the the premier outlet for understanding comprehensive assessment and understanding these issues that um, that we hope to convey about twice exceptional and gifted children. Thank you again. And, Thank you for um, your I'm, work too. We really appreciate your work. Well, thank well, you thank so you. much. We appreciate your endorsement, and we will continue uh, fighting the good fight, as I know you all will. We want to we'll thank take all uh, of us. Absolutely. Yeah. We want to thank Marianne Russo for starting the Coffee Clatch and for all she does to help our special needs children and our gifted children. And um, on behalf of all of us at the Coffee Clatch, Diane Kennedy, Rebecca Banks, our guests tonight, Linda Silverman and Bobby Gilman, have a wonderful evening. Good thank night. you. Bye-bye. Thank you.